Now, hopefully you're all there. Um, I'm not a betting man usually, but I'm willing to wager uh, maybe my house, my savings account, my kids that uh, most of you probably haven't studied the book of Malachi in depth or heard a sermon series from this book. Actually, shoot, now that I think about it, Kim didn't preach on it, right? So, um, oh well, you can't respond and if so, then goodbye kids. But anyways, Malachi is a hidden gem because it contains rich truths. Uh, this book has fresh relevance for the church today because in it, God addresses some timeless topics. Uh, Malachi deals with love, corporate worship, marriage, money, judgment, and the future. So if you really think about it, these are major issues for our fellowship group, for our demographic, and really for establishing the right trajectory for life. That's why we're going to call our sermon series, A Covenant Love, A Committed Life. Because as we mull over God's unwavering love towards his people, it ought to produce something within us. It should foster a life that is devoted to him, committed to God and his purposes. And most of the time, if there are any deviations from our devotion, you can likely trace this back to a faulty understanding of God and his steadfast love. His faithfulness towards his own forms the basis for how we live, relate, and honor God. This is something we'll see time and time again in our study as we're confronted and challenged by our passages. But for today, we dip our toe in the ocean of the wealth in this book by looking at chapter one. So for our time tonight, we're going to look at chapter one of Malachi, verses one to five. One to five. Follow along as I read our passage for us, and then we will ask the Lord for his help. Malachi 1, beginning verse 1, this is the word of God. The oracle of the word of God to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals, of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. God, we come to you. Um, knowing that we are beggars and we need you that more than mere black text on white pages, this is your word as living and active. And we pray that we'd be undone before it, that you would hold true to your promises, that your word would go forth and accomplish your purposes uh, to conquer stubborn hearts and to bind up those that are broken, to encourage those that are downcast and to wound those that are arrogant. Lord, help us to behold the richness of this passage as it communicates to us the magnificence and splendor 
of your love as demonstrated through your election, through your covenant to your people, and as we see it today, primarily in the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here, Lord, to convict and to guide that as your word is unleashed upon us, it would grip our hearts and transform us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse 1, I know, is so easy to skip over, but it's not a throwaway verse or something we should rush by. It provides some key information by dropping us into a certain point in redemptive history. It helps establish the setting of the book of Malachi so that we can properly grasp its content. And so look again at verse 1. The book of Malachi opens up saying, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, if you were here at the beginning of the year, Praxis studied the book of Haggai, another minor prophet. And what do you know? Malachi is actually Haggai's contemporary. Hence, part of the reason why these two books are so close together in the Old Testament, in the arrangement. And in the book of Haggai, if you recall, we find Israel, the nation of God, the people of God, at a low point. At a time where they have been humbled because of their disobedience. God's own nation played the harlot. They thought, well, since God is with us, we're unstoppable. We can do whatever we want. After all, they were God's chosen people. The nation he promised to bless, to make mighty and multiply, more numerous than the sand on the shores or the stars in the sky. But instead of being grateful, the Israelites had allowed God's promises and power go straight to their heads. And so God, God brings his own people down. As divine punishment, God sends foreign empires like Assyria and Babylon into the promised land to invade and conquer, subjugate his own people, to deport them and enslave them, to correct them. Jerusalem is ransacked. The temple is destroyed. Everything is burned to the ground. And the plundering of their city is a reflection of their ruined hearts until they get it, until they learn their lesson. With the ego's bruise, after decades, 70 years of exile, God graciously gives them another chance. The Israelites are brought back to their homeland and they start picking up the pieces, recovering as a nation. And this is, uh, this is, humbling for them because they're reconstructing God's temple a second time. But it's a shadow of its earlier splendor and wealth. It's symbolic. On the one hand, God has not abandoned his people, but they will also no longer have delusions of grandeur. And it pains the Israelites as they recall, as they reminisce over the good days when King David was on the throne. King Solomon, times when they prospered and were successful. And it causes them to mourn because of their current state. They're in shambles, dilapidated. They had gone from rags to riches, only back to rags again. And this is essentially where the book of Haggai leaves off when Malachi arrives on scene. Israel is still in the dumps, 
a shell of its former glory. And though they had reinstituted some of the priestly practices and made some progress and reform, it doesn't take long for them to backslide into their old ways, their sinful habits. They put on a religious performance, all the while still seeking their own kingdom, their own agenda, and treating the worship of their God as tedious, as cumbersome. These are tragic times. And that's why, that's why there's a need for the New Testament. Because Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends on such a bleak note. The Old Testament closes with the people of God as rebellious and discontent as ever, disparaging their own Lord in their hearts until it surfaces, until it comes out in bold accusations directly to God. And really, this serves as the structure and setting for the book of Malachi. It's as if we are placed in a courtroom to hear the arguments lofted back and forth between God and his people. I mean, skim the book and you can see six main disputes in Q&A format. Uh, just for example, a couple flip to Malachi 2, verse 17. And Malachi, on behalf of God, says, you have wearied the Lord with your accusations, almost as if he's pointing his finger at the Israelites. But they protest. But you say, how have we wearied him? Jump down to Malachi 3, verse 13. God says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And here again, the Israelites fight back. But you say, how have we spoken against you? So six of these contentions. And our passage tonight contains the very first one. But this volleyball of charges and accusations creates this legal atmosphere where Malachi then is cast as God's lawyer. And in many ways, the minor prophets, of which Malachi is the last of 12, function as God's attorney to provide a defense for how and why he responds to his people's disobedience as he does. In fact, the name Malachi literally means my messenger. Malak is message and Malachi is my messenger. And so God sends his messenger, Malachi, to deliver his message, one comprehensive closing statement against the Israelites. This book, then, is God's last word to his people before, get this, 400 years of silence. But there's hope. Darkness comes before the dawn. The deafening silence, you see, is a setup. God's final word in the Old Testament will give way to the ultimate word. When the word of God comes in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So there is much to glean from the end of the Old Testament, from the book of Malachi, because it prepares us for the coming of a Savior. It shows our desperate need by placing Israel on the autopsy bed and having us examine the spiritual death of a nation so that we might avoid suffering the same fate. It's no wonder this word for oracle in verse 1 can also be translated burden. Burden. This concluding message Malachi delivers is a heavy one, 
one that will linger again for the next four centuries. Burden carries a negative connotation. The word creates this ominous feel, anticipating bad news. The message Malachi bears is not going to be easy to receive. There is gravity, weightiness to this book. The opening line produces a threatening mood. The prophet has no choice but to unload the burden God has placed on him. And so what he is about to unpack and communicate is significant, is serious. This is the burden of the Lord to wayward Israel. And yet that's why I love verse 2. God does have some harsh words. He will rebuke the Israelites. But look at what he starts with. Love love. There are three movements to this passage on God's steadfast love. And so if you're taking notes, the first movement, the first point is found here in love stated. Love stated. Look in your Bibles at verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. Let's stop there. So matter of fact, Malachi comes out guns blazing, but not in the way you would think. Given the background, we, we, we just went over, God doesn't come beginning by blasting his people, although he had every right to, but he endears himself to them. That even God's burden is wrapped in his love. And this courses through the rest of the book. This is what God wants seared upon their minds and upon their hearts. Yes, the Israelites have messed up big time. Yes, God is not pleased. But all this doesn't do away with his enduring covenant with them. God reminds the Israelites first and foremost of his loyal love. The tense of God's love here is intentional. I have loved It signifies past action with continuous results. I have loved and I continue to love. We're given the panoramic view, the big picture. From past to present, God is reaching all the way into their history and pulling it into the now. And the glowing quality, the trademark of God's relationship with his people is his resilient love. You see, we need to read this book with love-tinted glasses. That even God's reproof and admonishment is administered in his love. Because there are times where we are tempted to doubt. And we know this from life, our own experiences. Our circumstances might preach a different message to us. And that's why these people, the Israelites, were ready to launch their rebuttal and protest against this statement. Verse 2, God beats them to the punch. But you say, how have you loved us? God says, I have loved, and they are questioning already. How have you loved us, God? And you can't blame them too much, just given the context we went over. The Israelites were observing their current condition, how they were pillaged and destitute as a nation, seemingly forsaken, and measuring it with what God had promised in the past how they were to thrive and be a glorious people. And the disconnect between the two is jarring. The discrepancy is so large, it leads them to criticize God's love. But notice where their suspicion falls. Not on their situation, not even on themselves. 
but their bullseye is upon God. Their logic, you see, moves in the wrong direction. Instead of having God as the foundation, as home base, and allowing God to be the interpretive lens for their circumstances, they move from their circumstance to interpret their God, to draw conclusions about him. And we might do that with a stranger we're meeting for the first time because we don't really know them. But we don't normally make snapshot judgments with a friend we've known for a long time, one who's proven their character, their integrity, their faithfulness. So here the Israelites are treating God as a stranger, allowing their circumstances to cloud all the ways they have experienced the goodness and faithfulness of their covenant-keeping God. Now, before we point the finger and shake our heads in judgment, how often do we do the same? Aren't there moments when we're ready to pipe up and contend with God, to question his goodness? It's when we can't explain why God would allow a whole year spent almost sheltered in place. Why there's scandal and bickering in the White House. Why vitriol flies constantly all over social media. Why acts of injustice are done. Why life simply doesn't go the way we want or expected. That's when we're ready to call God into our courtroom, to have him answer to us. I mean, this question in verse two, this is our question. After the car accident, the rejection letter, the autoimmune disease, the depleted bank account, the unemployment, the relational strife, the quarantine or singleness that goes on for far too long, we cry out in frustration, God, how have you loved me? And sometimes it doesn't even take a huge tragedy or prolonged suffering to break the camel's back. Just one final straw from a nagging parent or an unkind word or deadline missed. And we shake our fist at God. How? Why? How have you loved me, God? And I would guess we are perplexed because a lot of times our understanding and definition of love, including God's, is conditional. It's conditional. It's contingent on what we think is best. How we think we should be loved, not what God deems best. To us, love is not a concrete bedrock we stand on. It's the shifting sand of circumstances. When things are going swell, and according to our liking, our plans, then we feel loved. But as soon as they don't, well, that's when doubt creeps in. And that's why you need to hear God's answer to his people. His love is not situational. His love is steadfast. Even, even if it's expressed in an unexpected way. To the people's allegation, God declares the essence of his love. Look at the rest of verse 2 into verse 3. Here's God's response. All right, you want to know how I love? Is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, admittedly, this is strange. You know, if you were on the defense and trying to prove how you love someone, you probably cite all the things that you've done for them. Dude, of course I have loved you. 
Look at all the gifts I've bought you. I've stayed up late at night to listen to you vent and whine. I've prayed for you. I've even took the blame for you when it was your fault. And these can be appropriate evidences of love, probably what we instinctually think of. So what's God doing here in verses two and three? This isn't your usual normal way of confessing love. It sounds like someone who's awkward or really out of touch with reality. I mean, imagine if my kids came up to me and asked me how I love them and I took a cue from God's playbook and I told them, are there not other children in the world? Yeah, I have loved you, but other kids I have hated. You know, that kind of, uh, that kind of nurturing is not going to win me any Father of the Year awards, right? So what is this? How exactly is this loving? Well, God is proving he loves in his choosing. Since the birth of Jacob, God has covenanted himself to Jacob and the nation that would eventually come from him, Israel. Before they ever existed, God committed himself to them. This is the doctrine of election. Now, this election is obviously different from the one coming in November, but it's probably just as contentious. Election in the Bible deals with God's free, sovereign, unconditioned choice to pledge his allegiance and favor to a people for their eternal good. And that's why this duo of Jacob and Esau are spotlighted. Think of all the potential examples God could have used. He could have highlighted how he called and elected Abraham out of Ur, or Isaac over Ishmael, or little David from among his brothers. But instead, God keys in on Jacob and Esau. Why? Well, I think you know. Because they're twins. They're twins. You see, we assume family members to share similar physical features or personality quirks. We assume biological siblings to be even more alike in appearance or behavior. But twins, our assumptions are heightened to the max for identical twins in brothers who share the same gender, birthday, and environment. Their genetic makeup is closer than any other two candidates. So sorry if you're a twin, I don't mean to degrade you into some sort of lab rat, but we are genuinely intrigued. Because in this science experiment, there is a control to compare to. We expect twins to be more similar than different, so that when differences do arise, we're better positioned to discern why, to figure out what's the cause. You know, is it nurture or nature? education level, or social factors. So all things being equal, when God elects and loves one twin over the other, we can see the impact and result of his selection, which brings us to the second point, the second movement of our passage, from love stated to love seen. Love seen. In fact, to make the effect of God's love clear between the two, Esau actually has the upper, the upper leg. 
he has the slight advantage because he's the firstborn and therefore culturally entitled to the birthright and preferential treatment. And yet God commits himself to Jacob, to the younger, and the rest is history. Verse three and four. But Esau I have hated, and here's the result of God's hatred. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. These verses fill in the details for us. And God through Malachi travels down Esau's family line from which the nation of Edom comes. Now what you need to know is all the prophets of old pointed to Edom as Israel's perpetual enemy. From beginning to their end, they were constantly around to antagonize and afflict the Israelites. And these people were such a nasty bunch, so notorious for their hostility and vanity, that Edom, Edom became synonymous with being prideful. Yeah, as we learned in 1 Peter, God opposes the proud. And this is made explicit in our text. The agency and opposition is emphasized in the original says they, they may build, but I, I will tear down. And I believe this imagery harkens back to another famous account in the Old Testament. Think about it, build, tear down. What does that sound like? Sounds a lot like the quintessential showdown that took place at Babel, where man in his hubris builds a tower to rival with God and make a name for himself. But what does God do? He comes down. Still not high enough, God descends to squash their construction plans and then scatter them across the face of the earth. And in many ways, Edom is like Babel of O. They built themselves up by building up towers. The book of Obadiah describes how the Edomites lived in these high clefts in their city walls. Why? because they took pride in their lofty dwelling so as to boast of their might and look down on others. But remember, God opposes the proud. And God demolishes the Edomites until they are literally floored. The text tells us, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Their place of prominence is reduced to rubble for wildlife to sift through. And yet in their stubborn arrogance, the Edomites vow to rebuild. But just as strongly, God promises nothing will change. They will still be torn down. They are a people with whom the Lord is angry forever. To sum it all up, God declares it, Esau, I hate it. My guess is that doesn't sit well with us. We get uncomfortable with that kind of language. God is love. How can he hate? We've long enjoyed the catchy saying, hate the sinner, or sorry, hate the sin, love the sinner. And I get that sentiment, that we should care and love people, love people because they are created in the image of God. But if we actually search the scriptures, the Bible also tells us that God hates sinners. 
14 times alone in the first 50 Psalms, we're told God hates the evildoers, that his wrath is upon the wicked. So how do we reconcile this tension? Well, again, much of our confusion comes from projecting our conceptions and experiences of love and hate onto God. We've already discussed love, but God's hate is also not like ours. He's not impulsive in his anger or throwing a hissy fit when he hates. He's not petty or boiling with bitterness. No, let's allow God to speak for himself. The meaning of love and hate is plain before us in this passage in the aftermath. Once all the dust has settled, the influence and result of his love and hate are as clear as day. They can be seen. Because what do we find? Edom is left to their own demise and destroyed. Israel is spared. And this has nothing to do with their inherent worthiness, but with God's worth. After all, both nations find their origins in twins with the same crooked heart. On their own, Jacob and the nation of Israel would have fared no better than Esau and Edom. But in his love, God selects his people and sets his affection on them. By his own prerogative, God lavishes his love upon Israel. You see, love and hate is a matter of who God has committed himself to, who he has covenanted and entered into a personal relationship with. Here's the nuance. It's not that God loved Jacob more than Esau. It's that God loved Jacob rather than Esau. Yes, there is a sense in which God loves the world and all people, a general love. But usually when the Bible speaks about love, it refers to God's particular love, a special love reserved for his own. Think of marriage. I'm called to love all people, a general disposition to be benevolent and compassionate with others. But there is a particular love, a special love reserved for my wife. I think it goes without saying, it's not a crime to have this unique relationship, this distinct and elevated love towards her. But it is a greater love precisely because it is a love that chooses, a love that commits. Now, we still might have a hard time digesting all this because at the end of the day, it feels unfair. Why? Why Jacob, not Esau? But let me gently challenge that line of thinking. Let me reframe the question for us. Why Jacob, period? Do any of us merit the love of God? It's not like the, the glass is half full or half empty. The glass is shattered. According to the Bible, we don't start from a position of good and love or even neutral. Instead, what do we discover from the pages of Scripture and even from our own experiences? That we're sinful. We're rebels through and through who despise God. Left to ourselves, there is an evil streak in all of us. We're the true haters. You see, put like that. The question isn't why Jacob over Esau. The question is, why Jacob at all? My problem with this verse, verse 2, 
is not why God declares Esau I've hated. My problem with this verse comes before that in the first half. I can't understand why God would love Jacob, Israel, or someone like me. Jacob, the cheat and liar. Israel, the adulterous nation. Me, a wretched sinner. Friends, this is sheer grace. It is not owed to anyone. So let the awe of God's election, the expression of his covenant love, leave you lost for words until you finally find them in verse 5. Our last movement, our last point, is love celebrated. So we've gone from love seen, or sorry, love stated, love seen, to love celebrated. Now I know, I know, before you send me mean emails, uh, celebrated begins with a C while all the other previous points start with an S. But for the holy sake of alliteration, I give you permission to spell celebration with an S. But let's move on. Anyways, verse 5. Look at your Bibles. Verse 5 says, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Your eyes have seen this. Your eyes have seen God's word prove true. You know, for all of Edom's claims of rebuilding and making a name for themselves, you probably never heard of them, right? Outside of what you've just read in the Bible or from other passages in the scriptures. Why? Because it's exactly as God said. They were torn down. They are gone, no longer around. But God's story continues because so does his love. He's got big plans to love more people, people like you and me, who live beyond the borders of Israel. And so when we dive into the deep mysteries of God and arrive at the heart of his election, we simply find that he loves because he loves. And it should leave you stunned, puzzled. But there's two forms of this. We can either be stunned by how cold or unsatisfying it sounds, or stunned by how warm this truth actually is. You see, we're meant to celebrate his electing love, not to stain it. Now, whenever you open Pandora's box to election, you often encounter the question, how do I know that I am of the elect? But there's no secret answer key to God's secret will. The simplest and surest gauge is what has been revealed to us in the word. Beloved, what do you do with Jesus Christ? How do you respond to his call on your life? Do you repent and obey? Do you love him and others because he first loved us? Because at the end of the day, you can have all the the theological debate and argument you want on election, but it'll mean nothing if you don't have Christ. If you don't love him, that is the surest sign. In the Bible, the doctrine of election is never meant or spoken of as a stumbling block for evangelism or deterrent that stifles our love for God and others. It's never a reason to question our faith, if you will. But instead, the doctrine of election, it's always presented in a positive light. 
as a comforting truth to bless and strengthen the believer, to give us confidence for obedience and kindle our hearts with affection, that wonder of wonders, God does love you. That his love extends beyond the border of Israel, beyond people who are ethnically Jew. And now in Christ, through the gospel, God's love can reach you and me. It's as Hosea 2, 23 predicts, God will say to a group, a, a people once labeled, not my people, he will rename them and call them, you are my people. And as we saw in 1 Peter 2, 10, this partially fulfilled, once you were not a people speaking to the church now, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the glory of the gospel, friends, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God created man in his image. Why? To give him faculties to enjoy a relationship with him in communion with our maker. But we played the fool. We said, forget God, and we sinned against him. We rebelled. And the punishment for our crime is eternal damnation. And if the books were shut there, it would be right. Everyone would receive what they deserve. God's justice and holiness would be upheld. And we would suffer under the sentence of our crime. But God is gracious, merciful. God is loving. And he sees us in our bankrupt, helpless state, knowing that we have no power to save ourselves. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. 100% God, 100% man, to reconcile the two. And Jesus lives a perfect, holy, righteous life. So that he can go to the cross. Because he des doesn't deserve to be there. So he can stand in our place as our substitute. So that for those who repent and believe, who would trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we might be viewed as if we had lived Jesus' perfect, blameless life, credited with his righteousness. And God would see his son as if he had lived my sinful, blemished life. And he would crush his own son. Why? So that the offer of salvation would go beyond the border of Israel. So that the gift of redemption would reach sinners like you and me. So that if we ever feel the question bubbling up in our hearts, how have you loved me, God? God would point to the cross and he would say, that's how I love you that I have elected and chosen you in Christ, that before the foundations of the world, I have committed myself to saving you, to entering into a relationship with you so that you would be mine and we would praise him for it. But the good news is always preceded by the bad. And so it is with God's love. Because here's the tough truth that leads to a tender one. We are not inherently lovable. It's not that God saw something remarkable in us that made us worthy recipients of his love. Instead, he saw how unworthy we are. And he still loves us. 
And this love is so much better because it means since God did not fall in love with you, he cannot fall out of love with you. It means on your ugliest days, when you are at your absolute worst, God's love for you does not dampen or lessen. When you lose your temper, when you blow it at work, when you give in to temptation, you don't lose an ounce of his affection for you. God takes you for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, and he never breaks vows. He has set his love upon you, and in Christ he has chosen you. I was thinking about this, just looking back on the years of my life, and all I can do is marvel. You know, I've seen friends with so much potential and promise go off the deep end. Some of them grew up in the church. Others were just well off or uh, from a stable home. And I can list many of my peers smarter than me, more athletic. And as much as it pains me to say, even better looking too. Yet for one reason or another, they're not walking with the Lord. And I look at my life, nothing magical or special. I was raised in a non-Christian household a troubled teenager, pagan and worldly, with no care or thought of God. And what sets me apart? What makes me a suitable candidate? There's only one explanation. There's only one hero to my story. There's only one person worthy of praise, and that is God. Because God pursued, God chose, and God loves. And what else can I say but great is the Lord? Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel because that's where I was found, on the outside. How has God loved me? How has he not? Beloved, how has God not loved you in Christ? And I know we want to tease out all the applications of this rich doctrine. Now, here at Lighthouse, we are big on getting at the heart and putting our faith into practice. You know, here are the implications, here are the steps we need to take, here are the changes I need to make. And that's right and appropriate. But listen, it's also appropriate at times just to bask in God's love until it overwhelms you, until it grips you and compels you to praise him, because our hearts are won over by his heart. And that's when transformation follows. Sometimes what's best to do is not to focus on all that we can do, but just to appreciate and celebrate what God has done. God's love has been stated. It has been seen. Let us close celebrating his love in song and fellowship. Let's pray. God, what a glorious passage. Lord, it, it pushes us towards the cross. It shows us the majesty and grace, the power and humility of Christ, that he would love such a people. Sinners like, like me. Sinners who had no desire for the things of you and yet Lord, you would transform our hearts. Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? 
and to that we are left speechless. But Lord, you have shown us the answer in the cross and in your word, and that you are a glorious, loving God, that in your sovereignty and in your wisdom, you would elect and choose some, Lord, that you do not condemn all, but Lord, you are gracious to spare us, to save us, to ransom us, that we might be in relation with you. And so, Lord, I pray that would sink into our hearts, Lord, that it would captivate our attention, arrest our affection, and make us new and holy, that you would do your work and conform us to the image of Christ. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.